Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1918, the 22nd season of the VFL, and the fifth season impacted by World War I. The war continued to dominate affairs internationally and in Australia. Russia and Germany agreed a peace treaty, freeing up German forces for an offensive on the Western Front in March, but that did not achieve the breakthrough they desired. As the year progressed, the tide of war turned for the Allies and an armistice was declared on the 11th of November. But this was a long way off and an unknown outcome at the start of the football season. Another significant development in 1918 was the spread of the Spanish flu. It became a pandemic in June to August, and worldwide over 30 million people would die in the following six months. Australia was a long way from the rest of the world, and travel was not as fast as today, so the Spanish flu would not reach our shores until early 1919. So we will hear more about its impact next episode. In the lead up to the 1918 season, momentum was building to return football to an almost normal setting. St Kilda and Essendon decided that they would return to the VFL, playing as amateurs and profits to be donated to the patriotic causes. Melbourne continued to stand down, maintaining their commitment not to play football during a time of war. There would now be an eight-team competition, each club playing each other twice for a 14-round season, with the now-traditional amended Argus Final Four, as conducted in previous seasons. The VFA also decided to restart their competition under similar conditions to raise funds for war efforts. They may have also been influenced by the fact that an agreement requiring players to get a clearance to transfer from the VFA to the VFL and vice versa would expire in July. As it was unlikely that the agreement would be renewed, the VFA risked losing players wholesale to the league if they could not offer them a game. Fitzroy would be without some key players who had enlisted, including Percy Parrott, who was the playing coach of the 1913 Premiership team and kicked three goals in the 1916 Premiership and also played in the losing 1917 Grand Final team. He was joined by Gordon Rattray, who had also been in the 1917 runners-up team, and James Toohey from the 1916 and 17 Grand Final teams, and Ted Purcell, forward pocket in the 1916 Premiership. A big gap to fill at any time, made harder by the shortage of players in wartime conditions. Jock McHale would be coaching Collingwood again, of course, as reigning premiers, but he declared that he would only play if absolutely necessary. He would turn 36 in 1918, and after 15 years, he was very much at the end of his playing career. He would, in fact, only play one game in round 16 this year. One further change in 1918 was the end of the stewards. These officials had the power to enter the playing field and report players, providing a backup to the umpire. The system had not always produced great results. There were complaints that the stewards obstructed play and partly as a cost-cutting measure to reduce expenses, the league ended the experiment after four seasons. The start of the season and the return of St Kilda and Essendon had seen another round of letters and articles criticising the league and the clubs for playing the game during a time of war. These arguments have been going on for a number of seasons now, but the football record did make the point that between seasons 1914 to 1917, the league had raised £6,080 
for patriotic causes. To give this some perspective, this would be about $560,000 in today's money. A significant sum from a competition played in Melbourne with a limited number of clubs. The 1918 season opened on Saturday the 11th of May. Grounds were rock hard on the mild 22 degree day, with some rain falling during the afternoon, but not enough to keep the crowds away. For the first time since 1915, there were four games on a Saturday afternoon. St Kilda surprised many by defeating 1917 runners-up Fitzroy by one goal, a terrific start to their return to football after two years away. Although, as I mentioned earlier, it was a depleted Maroons team with four key players from 1917 now enlisted in the army. It was a sombre mood at Victoria Park, where Collingwood's premiership flag was unfurled in front of 7,000 spectators. Carlton's new captain, Rod McGregor, was missing from the team, after he had learnt during the week that his brother had died in France. The premiership flag was lowered to half-mast, in respect of McGregor's brother, and also for South Melbourne's President and Labor Member of Parliament, George Elmsley, who had died after a brief period of ill health, just before the season started. In other games on the opening round, Richmond were too good for an Essendon team that was still establishing itself, and South Melbourne had a comfortable win over Geelong. The Pivotonians had decided to wear red socks as part of their uniform this year, but the new colour did not help in the opening round. Round 2 saw the end of one of the longest winning, or losing, streaks between two clubs. Richmond had entered the VFL in 1908 and played 24 games against Carlton without a win. But round 2, 1918, brought that 10-year streak to an end when the Yellow and Blacks travelled to Princess Park and despite Carlton kicking two late goals, it was Richmond that prevailed in a tight last quarter to win by five points. There was sure to be celebrations around Punt Road after that famous win. Essendon picked up their first win against fellow returnee St Kilda and Fitzroy were without a win after two rounds when they lost to a strong South Melbourne team. Joining the Maroons on no wins were Carlton and Geelong. Round four was a split round for the King's birthday long weekend, with two games on Saturday and two on the Monday. Carlton were able to beat Essendon despite some very poor kicking in front of goal. The winning score was eight goals, 27 behinds, which was a record number of behinds in the VFL's 21-year history, although Essendon's accuracy was not much better, at four goals, 13. South were undefeated as they travelled to the Junction Oval, In front of about 12,000 spectators, the Saints welcomed long-kicking David McNamara back into their team for his first game of the season. He rewarded the Saints with three goals from his first three kicks of the year. In a close match, the Southerners did not score a goal in the second half and went down by five points. The match reviews were full of praise for McNamara and Roy Kazaley, who played well for the Saints. Writing in the Argus, Observer did make a point of criticising South's Jack Howell, who got three goals in the second quarter, but then, quote, did nothing of consequence. What was not revealed for nearly 50 years was the real reason for South Melbourne's loss, which was to become even more significant as the season went on. Mark Tandy, the Southerners' wingman, revealed to the local newspaper, the South Melbourne Record, that the team had celebrated the long weekend in Dandenong at the home of a well-known racing identity, who was a patron of the South Melbourne Club. Best to let Tandy's own words tell the story. 
Boy, I will never forget that weekend. Most of us did not shut our eyes for 48 hours, and when they put us on the train at Ferntree Gully near midday, that sleep to Flinders Street was the only shut eye we had to freshen us up for the game. Some of the boys were wobbling at the knees when they walked from the St Kilda train across to the St Kilda Oval. Fair dinkum. When some were dressed up to go out in the field, they had to be headed in the right direction of the arena and given a shove off. That they ever saw the game out was a miracle. This might explain the lack of scoring in the second half of the game by South Melbourne. By the halfway mark of the season, it was South and Collingwood leading the pack, both having won six of their seven games. Carlton and St Kilda filled out the top four with four wins each. Fitzroy and Richmond had three wins, but Essendon and Geelong were doing it tough, both having just won a single game. Round 10, 1918, provided one of those quirks that please and delight the statistics-focused football supporters. In what was the first and possibly only time the round lined up first versus second, third versus fourth, fifth versus sixth, and seventh versus eighth. Mathematically, with eight teams playing, this is about a 1 in 40,000 chance. Don't hold your breath for the next time, especially with the larger number of teams playing in the modern era. The game that had most interest was between Collingwood and South Melbourne. Both had only lost one game so far, and it was the Southerners that claimed premiership favouritism by winning the game by one goal. They were in front all day and held on despite Collingwood mounting a three-goal challenge in the last quarter. The other big result was St Kilda having a rare win over the Blues at the Junction Oval. With three rounds remaining, Kikaro in the Herald was tipping south to finish on top, followed by Collingwood and Carlton. The candidates for fourth spot for the finals were St Kilda returning to league football after a two-year break, or Fitzroy, last season's runners-up. The Saints made sure of their final spot by winning two of their three games, including knocking off second-place Collingwood by two goals. Fitzroy, depleted by enlistment and injuries, lost their last three games of the year, finishing fifth, two games behind the Saints. The first semi-final would be between Collingwood and St Kilda, and, in the second semi-final, South Melbourne, ladder leaders having only lost one game, and holders of the right to challenge, would play third-place Carlton. The first semi-final was held on Saturday, 17th of August. St Kilda were described by some in the media as the champagne team because they were light but full of sparkle and virility. 29,000 people were at the game, double that of the 1917 first semi and a record crowd for a wartime game, another signal that Melbournians were returning to the game despite the fact that the war was still underway. The Argus did not rate the game highly, It seems that Collingwood focused on closing the game up with packs of players to counter the pace and speed of the St Kilda game. The Saints were nine points up at half-time. The game opened up a little in the third quarter, with both teams scoring a goal and Collingwood gaining by a couple of points. The three-quarter time scores were St Kilda 7 goals 6-48 to Collingwood's 5 goals 11-41. It was anyone's game. Collingwood started quickly and soon had drawn level. Then it was a pressure period of the game where neither side could score a goal. Collingwood had the ball in their half more often, drawing a few points clear. Supporters from both teams were urging their boys on. 
but it was the Magpies that scored the decisive goal. And while the Saints kept pushing, the final bell rang out, and Collingwood were through to the grand final by 8 points. Collingwood, 7 goals 16, the Saints on 7 goals 7. The Magpies had more scoring shots, and perhaps could have claimed the game earlier with straighter kicking. But the Saints had played well. A team that had been out of the VFL for two years were just two straight kicks from playing in a grand final. The game had been exciting, with the largest attendance since the war, but there was some poor behaviour in the crowd, which is a reminder that while violence in the crowd at modern games is to be condemned, it is not as if everyone was always well behaved in the past. A beer booth in the outer was damaged with virtually every glass being smashed. The cause of the vandalism was an increase in the price of beer to sixpence a glass. Questions were raised whether the income received from beer sales was worth the risk to bar staff. Possibly not the last time such a question could be asked. The second semi-final was due to be played on Saturday the 24th of August, but the weather was atrocious. There had been significant rainfall. Rivers and creeks flooded throughout Melbourne and the ground was unfit to play. The playing surface was basically underwater and the Adverse Weather Committee made their decision before midday that the game should be postponed. The poor weather would also have led to a very small attendance. It was only the fourth time the league had postponed games, the three previous occasions being the death of King Edward, the celebration of the relief of Mafeking during the Boer War, and in May 1900 there was a round postponed due to poor weather. It must be remembered that grounds at this time did not have good drainage, and while many games were played in mud and slush, there were limits to what was acceptable, even then. I'm not sure how the news was spread to potential spectators in the absence of a broadcast media, but perhaps with such poor weather, it was not an unexpected delay. However, many hundreds did turn up at the MCG, and they were understandably bitterly disappointed that their travels had been in vain. The second semi did eventually take place on Saturday 31st of August, South had beaten Carlton in both their games during the home and away season, albeit by only four points in the first meeting and two goals at Princes Park. But Carlton had lost six games during the season to South's one, so it was the Southerners that started as favourites in this game. 35,000 people turned up at the MCG, breaking the wartime game record set two weeks earlier, and they saw a cracking game of football that could have gone either way right up to the last moments. In the first quarter, Carlton were quicker in action and surer in kicking and had a couple of goals on the board within a few minutes. But then South found their rhythm and dominated the second half of the opening stanza, picking up three goals and taking a lead at quarter time. The second quarter saw Carlton attacking more and if not for the high marking defenders in the back line, South Melbourne would have been in significant trouble. At half time, the Blues had a lead but only by three points. Supporters of both teams discussed their chances during the break. It had been an even first half, and it was difficult to see who would take the game out. Carlton had been the better team in the second quarter, but the Southerners' back line had blunted most of their attacks. In the third quarter, it was South playing better football this time, but they still were not able to score enough goals to establish a winning break. This time, the Blues' defence, although under pressure, managed to hold back enough of the red and white team's attacks to limit the damage. The bell went for three-quarter time, 
with South on 6 goals 8.44 and the Blues on 5 goals 7.37. South were in front, but not by enough to feel comfortable. Shortly after the start of the fourth quarter, the Blues had got level with South Melbourne. The team that had led the league all season was being challenged like never before. But the reason that they had led the league all season soon became clear when they were able to manufacture two critical goals. Big Tom O'Halloran, playing as a ruckman in his first season, snuck a goal late in the quarter. This was followed up by Jack Doherty, who had played 67 games for South, despite only having one eye. In this game, he was playing as a rover and late in the quarter, spun out of trouble and snapped Trawley for the ceiling goal. Carlton, though, did not give up, and their centre-half forward, Harry Fennell, took a great mark from a quick kick out of the centre. He went back and kicked a goal to narrow the gap, but it was too late to get any closer. The bell went, and it was south in front, 8 goals 10-58, to Carlton, 7 goals 11-53. South were through to the grand final, against the reigning premiers, and second place Collingwood. It was a game that everyone was anticipating. The grand final was held on Saturday, September 7th. It was the first time South Melbourne and Collingwood had met in a VFL final, although they had played in the last VFA Premiership match in 1896, before the split that created the VFL. South were the favourites, and they only had to win the game to be Premiers. Collingwood would have to win the match and then defeat South again, as they held the right of challenge for finishing the home and away season on top of the ladder. Collingwood were the reigning premiers and had three premierships from seven grand finals, while South had just won one premiership in 1909, although they had been runners-up four times. In 1913, the Herald had published an article that questioned South's psychological hardness. Such was their tendency to lose big games when the pressure was on. Collingwood's coach was Jock McHale, in his seventh season in charge. He'd won the premiership as a playing coach in 1915 and again in 1917. This year he only played one game for the entire season against Essendon as he transitioned to a non-playing coach. The Magpies captain would again be Percy Wilson in his second season leading the team. He wanted to lead Collingwood to go back-to-back premiers as they had in 1902 and 1903. South Melbourne's coach was a lifelong South man, Bert Howson, who was assisted by Henry Elms. Bert Howson, a fast-paced wingman, had played 204 games with South Melbourne across the VFA and VFL eras from 1893 to 1908. He had started coaching South in 1918, replacing captain coach Vic Belcher, who remained on as a player. In Bert Howson's playing career, he had vied with Collingwood's Albert Panham for the title of Prince of Wingman. Their duels were so anticipated, crowds would move from one side of the ground to the other as players swapped wings each quarter. Both outstandingly fair players, Halson told the story of one game where he had an injured shoulder. Panham said, Tell me which shoulder's hurt, Bert, and I'll play on the other side so as not to bump it. I don't think that would happen in the modern game. They remained friends for life. Bert Howson was also South Melbourne's secretary from 1904 to 1921, which overlapped with both his playing and coaching career. Indeed, during the First World War, he wrote to all of the South Melbourne players serving with the forces and sent them regular food packages and magazines. South Melbourne's captain in 1918 was Jim Caldwell. 
He had played with the club since 1909, but missed the Premiership that year when he was suspended after the preliminary final for nine weeks. He had played in the losing grand final in 1912 under captain coach Charlie Ricketts. He took over the captaincy in 1918 as part of the leadership change that saw Vic Belcher step down as captain coach. He would play 115 games for South before moving to Footscray in the VFA in 1920 and then starting a coaching and playing career with Perth in 1923. He would return to the VFL as coach of Carlton in 1925 before a short stint as coach of South Melbourne in 1929 when he was pushed out after just four games. Sadly, he died after a short illness later that year from peritonitis at just 41. Because Caldwell had missed the 1909 Premiership due to suspension, Vic Belcher was the only South player to have played in a winning grand final team. In fact, South Melbourne had done a lot of recruiting in their two years back in the VFL and played 12 new players this season, with six of them in the grand final. Not quite as good as Carlton in 1914 with nine first-year players in a grand final, but still a fair effort. Collingwood had 12 of its 1917 team playing, giving them the advantage in terms of experience, while South were the form team of the competition. The umpire for this grand final was once again Jack Elder, returning to his familiar role after a four-year break. This would be his seventh grand final. John Worrell, a four-time premiership coach, wrote a profile of Elder in the Australasian. Never reluctant to hold back in criticism when he felt it appropriate, Worrell could also give credit when it was deserved. He said of Elder, quote, It can be confidently asserted that no umpire that ever lived possessed a better knowledge of the laws of the game. Worrell also said, Elder recognises that force, legitimately employed, is an essential to a rough-and-tumble game like football. He's not everlastingly pulling the game up. Something that maybe umpires of today could take note of. For the first time since 1915, there was a curtain raiser before the big game. This year, between Glen Ferry and St Kilda Road schoolboy teams, St Kilda Primary would win the match by three goals. The crowd was the largest yet for a final series, and again broke the record for wartime attendance at 39,200. Returned soldiers, if they were wearing a blue armband, showing that they were spending time in hospital, were admitted free to the game via a special gate with a section of the ground reserved for them. South Melbourne had the advantage of the wind in the first quarter and opened with the first goal of the day when forward flanker Harold Robertson used a place kick to get his team on the board. After this initial push forward, It was Collingwood who started making the play. Dick Lee got Collingwood's first. Their second was the result of some fast work by Ernie Lumsden from the forward pocket when a pack of players misjudged the flight of the ball, allowing Lumsden to rove the pack, pick up the loose ball and snap Trawley. The game was moving quickly, with both teams showing an example of good play and strong marking. South then took up the running of the game and their centre-half forward, Gerald Ryan, took a long shot to get their second goal. Charlie Laxton put Collingwood a goal ahead with his kick off the ground that went through an undefended goal just before the quarter-time bell. The score at quarter-time was Collingwood 3 goals 3, 21, to South Melbourne 2 goals 5, 17. In the second quarter, South Melbourne's follower, Phil Skeen, had to move to full forward. He had come into the game under an injury cloud 
after hurting his leg in the second semi-final the week before. A fitness test of sorts in the morning before the game had given him and the selectors enough confidence to play him in the biggest game of the season. But not even halfway through the game, he was having to rest in the forward line. Collingwood did much more of the attacking in the second quarter and their back line was solid, repelling any effort by South to score. Dick Lee used a place kick from a sharp angle to get his second goal, but that was the only major for the quarter. The Magpies could have felt themselves unlucky as two shots at goal that looked like they might have gone through ended up hitting the post. They had dominated the quarter, but had been terribly inefficient in front of goal, resulting in one goal and six behinds added to their score. The Southerners had spent the first half looking a bit rattled, overrunning the ball and fumbling when in the previous weeks they had been clean and skilful. They were also making simple mistakes, such as two players attacking the ball rather than one helping the other. Perhaps the South Melbourne tendency to funk in big games, as per the 1913 article, was happening again. The halftime score was Collingwood 4 goals 9, 33, to South Melbourne 2 goals 5, 17. During the halftime break, there were recruiting speeches made by a number of army sergeants. They were listened to politely, according to some reports, but the Argus noted that no recruits came forward. The Richmond Juvenile Brass Band also provided some entertainment. The third quarter saw a much improved game. South Melbourne had taken advantage of the break to calm down and settle into their normal game, while Collingwood continued their good form of the first half, but this time with more accuracy in front of goals. The crowd began to make more noise as they enjoyed the improved competition from the season's two best teams. South's ruckman, Jack Howell, took a high-leaping mark, clearing the pack around him, which helped inspire his teammates. Then South's Harold Robinson collected the ball on the run and kicked his second goal, and South's first goal since early in the first quarter. They were back in the game. Shortly after, South's wingman, Artie Wood, delivered what John Worrell described as the greatest individual effort of the day with a wonderful run along the wing. Twisting and turning to evade the Collingwood tackles, he delivered a perfect pass to Ernie Barber, deep in the forward line. Ernie was clear and on his own, but he dropped the mark. However, a quick recovery saw him gather the ball and score South's fourth goal. It was only a kick the difference. Now it was Collingwood's turn to attack, and forward pocket Les Hughes, a steady, dependable player, but not always the straightest of kicks put the Magpies 12 points up. It was turning into one of the best quarters of football for the entire season. The action moved from one end of the ground to the other. Fast open play, high marks and goal for goal. The noise was overpowering. It had been many years since this many people had gathered for a game and they were being shown the best of Australian football. The three-quarter time score was Collingwood 7 goals 12-54 to South 6 goals 6 42. Collingwood had led at every break, and they were taking a two-goal lead into the last quarter, but would it be enough? Collingwood's captain, Percy Wilson, spoke to his boys, looking for a big last quarter, and Jim Caldwell, the South Melbourne captain, had a similar message for his team. If you're wondering, coaches were not allowed onto the ground at quarter-time breaks until 1964. Caldwell also had one trick up his sleeve, Veteran and former captain coach Vic Belcher had been selected in the back pocket 
and had been doing his part. But now he was swung into the ruck, a position that he had dominated earlier in his career. It proved to be an inspired decision. The final quarter was a more tense, hard-fought affair than the brilliant third quarter. Early in the piece, South's Tom O'Halloran passed it on to their forward Gerald Ryan, who kicked Trawley. South Melbourne were only six points down. Then the defenders were holding their own for both teams, but Belcher was helping to move the ball into South's forward line and giving energy to their play. With nine minutes to go, South Melbourne's full forward Gerald Ryan took another strong mark and kicked his second goal of the quarter. Scores were level. South had the momentum and Collingwood were trying to hold on. The Magpie champion forward Dick Lee got hold of a bouncing ball and passed to forward pocket Ernie Lumsden. He had two goals already and as he lined up his place kick, a silence descended over the crowd. Would this be enough to give Collingwood the game and push the season into an extra deciding match? His kick looked good but veered away late and it was just behind. But the Magpies were now in front by one point. South tried to clear the ball, but Collingwood's ruckman Les Hughes took a chance with a long shot, but it fell short. The ball was clear to the forward pocket where Dick Lee took a mark on a difficult angle, but he was something of a goal-kicking machine. He had three goals so far in this game. Could he give the sealer to the Magpies? Could he use up enough time to finish the game? His shot was not a good one, and man of the final quarter, Vic Belcher, took a strong mark and quickly moved the ball right down the centre with a big kick. There was about 30 seconds to go, and South Melbourne's fast wingman, Mark Tandy, collected the ball and raced past three opponents, and kept the ball moving forward with a prodigious kick that landed one or two metres in front of the goal. There was a struggle in the goal square, and South Melbourne's forward pocket, Chris Laird, playing his 12th game in his first season of VFL football, collected the most important statistic of his career a tap from his boot off the ground to get the ball across the goal. His third for the game, and the one that put South Melbourne back in front for the first time since early in the first quarter. The ball made its way back to the centre for a bounce, and before any more impact on the game, the bell rang, and South Melbourne supporters were cheering and running onto the ground to congratulate their players. South had snatched the game away from Collingwood in the final seconds. The Red and Whites had finished the season on top of the ladder, but only won their semi-final by five points, and now had come from behind, literally in the last minute, to win the Premiership by five points. But a win is a win, and they were now the Premiers for 1918. Clarendon Street would be hosting the celebrations on Saturday night. South Melbourne could have held a unique record of going through the season undefeated, except for that long weekend spent in the Dandenongs where they partied long and hard and struggled when going onto the Junction Oval against the Saints. But that was a secret known only to a few for the moment. Veteran Vic Belcher had the rare honour of being the only South Melbourne player to have won two premierships at the club, a record he would hold until 2012. There was an attempt to play a game between VFA Premiers North Melbourne and VFL Premiers South Melbourne the week after the grand final it would be to raise money for the patriotic funds. Given North had gone through their season undefeated and South had only lost one game in their season, it might have been an entertaining game. North and the VFA were keen and South Melbourne agreed 
subject to VFL approval. But the VFL did not meet during the week, having turned down a similar proposal from the Lord Mayor some weeks earlier. The game did not get the sign-off from league headquarters, and the proposal floundered. The season had been the best attended since the war began. Several reviews in the newspapers said that the standard of play was still not up to the standard of pre-war levels, but perhaps the more encouraging news reports from the front and the fact that eight clubs were playing combined to attract more people to the games. In November, the news that people had been waiting for finally arrived. The war was over. Celebrations broke out across the land. This episode will end on a different note to reflect the end of the war and remind us of the challenges faced by everyone in those years. The 750 VFL footballers that served, the 94 players that died on active service, the equivalent of five teams lost, the 417,000 Australians that enlisted from a population of less than 5 million, all the families that waited for people to return, and the millions upon millions of people across the world, some killed, some injured, and many losing their homes or family members, and sadly, in a conflict that was not the war to end all wars. The Imperial War Museum in London has used some innovative methods to capture the moment the war ended. I'll include a link on the grandfinalhistory.com.au website for this episode if you want to know more. During battles, the location of artillery could be mapped by recording their sounds. Microphones transferred the sound vibrations that were recorded as images onto rolls of film. One of these pieces of films survived from the morning of November 11, 1918. The Imperial War Museum used the recorded vibrations to recreate the following sounds from the moments before 11am on the 11th of November, 1918.